Welcome back. You're listening to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this week we're honored to be joined by Paul Dix, co-founder and CTO of InfluxDB. The goal of this podcast is to gather first-hand accounts from the founders who help build successful open source software companies. Started around seven years ago, InfluxDB is a time series data platform that's achieved significant market adoption, including deployments at more than 450 enterprise customers like Cisco, IBM, eBay, and Siemens. The company's raised around $120 million, which it's using to expand operations around the world. As both a founder and longtime developer, Paul has some deep insights about open source business. So without further ado, let's cut to the tape. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I guess you were a developer before you started InfluxDB. I'm wondering about how did the company come about? Yeah, as you mentioned, I'm a developer. I guess I should probably start. Like I've been developing software for a long time since I got into the computer industry in the late 90s. And the experience that I have that is most directly relevant to Influx is in 2010, I was working at a fintech startup in New York City, and we had to build essentially a time series solution for tracking market data in real time. Like we were building like a pricing engine that would update prices, price predictions once every 10 seconds for like hundreds of thousands of, of different financial instruments. Building a solution around that was like my first foray into, into time series. And for that, I used you know, web services written in Scala with Cassandra as the long-term data store and Redis as like a real-time indexing engine. So from a, from a development background, that was kind of my background. But from an entrepreneurship perspective, like I always knew that I wanted to start a company. And it was basically just a matter of building up enough experience along the way, like working at other startups, working at large companies, and getting to a point where I felt comfortable venturing out on my own and trying to start something. So in one of your talks, you mentioned that open core and cloud are two viable revenue streams for pure play open source companies. I'm wondering if you think that that's still true. I guess, depending on your viewpoint, open core is not a pure play open source strategy, strictly speaking, right? Like, if you're thinking pure play open source, like everything you do is open source and, and basically you just charge for services where those services are either professional services or it's cloud hosting, right? Realistically, I think successful businesses that are built around open source have to be open core in some way. And I definitely count, you know, SaaS platforms in that vein. And basically, I think the, the key is like, you have to have something that would in open source that's interesting enough that people can solve enough of their problems with where a large community of users can build on top of it or build you know using your software without becoming customers and that just has to be the case for it to be a successful open source project and then the the core part that's the open core and then the closed source part has to be you know offer some value that's interesting enough that some small percentage of that community will pay you for it i think if you're looking at infrastructure software, like there's the the best method for building a business on top of that now is basically as a cloud hosted service. Now, obviously, like not all infrastructure is in the cloud. There's obviously still a very large component of on-premise enterprise software. But I think as software delivery mechanism, like 
a SaaS, you know, hosted service is just so much better because you have the ability to fully instrument it, to fix bugs quickly, and to really do a bunch of things that just are, are basically impossible if you're delivering on-premise software. And I think also from the business perspective, like if you look at other open source companies, that's, that's largely played out over the last you know, few years where the companies that are most successful have essentially SaaS products that are built on, t- that use their open source core, but have a bunch of closed source software around them. MongoDB's Atlas, Databricks is basically a SaaS product of, of Spark. Redis Labs, obviously hosting Redis. Elastic has their own hosting stuff. Your original monetization strategy was around support. And I'm wondering why you think that didn't work. I think part of it has to do with our project maturity at the time. I think support works well if you have a piece of software that has become what I call critical path for larger customers who are willing to pay for support. Critical path generally in the database world means you're an OLTP database that is used directly in an application. Influx frequently is used, you know, in monitoring cases where, you know, the data is important and it's important for a monitoring system, but it's not what your, as a user, your customer sees. So I think, and particularly at the time when we first offered support, which was in the summer of 2015, you know, there just weren't that many people yet using Influx in production in a setting where they just needed support and it would pay for it. And the other thing is like, ultimately, like, I think support as a business model for open source kind of pits you almost against your community. Because the thing is, like, if your software is too easy to use or too good, people won't need support. The only thing they'll purchase support for is basically as an insurance policy to make sure you're still around and pushing the software forward, which is a limited audience that you can sell to. And the other thing is, as an open source project becomes more and more successful, other people will come in and offer support around it. And in my talk a couple of years ago about open source business models, I said, support is going to be your plan. Like as an entrepreneur, you'd be better served by picking an open source project that's already popular and offering support around it because if you're building the open source project yourself, like all that engineering time that you're putting into it are basically billable hours that you have consultants not billing. If you're a consulting shop, you need your people billing, right? This is why Procona offers support for MySQL and other databases because it's better to build a consulting organization around existing projects. Right. I think that's true. Time series databases are used by a wide array of companies. Practically any organization could be your customer. I'm wondering if you segment the market at all to figure out who do you sell to. There are definitely different market segments, but normally what we do is we segment on use case. We have what we call like DevOps monitoring, which could be server monitoring or network monitoring or monitoring of well-known services, application performance monitoring. Real-time analytics, which could be business intelligence. It could be all sorts of things. Sensor data is a big use case, particularly in the industrial sphere. This is like oil and gas wells, power generation, power plants, solar, wind, all that kind of stuff. And then finally, financial market data is an obvious choice. 
for time series. So that's kind of how we segmented. In terms of what industry verticals we play in, like, like I said, in IoT alone, you could track a bunch of different verticals, oil and gas, renewable energy, factories, different stuff like that. And then server monitoring, again, you could have different verticals. Like we have big e-commerce retailers. We have other software startups that use, use our stuff as a platform. We have people in finance, uh, research, all that kind of stuff. Did you start the company and the project at the same time? So the company actually predates the project, which is not very common for, I think, for most open source businesses. Usually, there's an open source project that you then try to commercialize later. So the company was started essentially as a SaaS product for doing real-time metrics and monitoring, kind of in the same vein as like Datadog or Stackdriver or some, some pieces of New Relic. And when we were building that company initially, what we found was one, like that product wasn't really taking off. Like we didn't have a good clear differentiator on that product. But the other thing was we had to build all of this infrastructure to actually build that product. We essentially had to build a time series platform. Basically, like I started the company with my co-founder in 2012, halfway through 2012. We did Y Combinator and Lunar 13. And then by September of 2013, I realized that that wasn't going to take off. And I thought, well, let's just take this infrastructure stuff that we had been building for this application. It was called Airplane, E-R-R-P-L-A-N, Airplane. Let's take that code. Let's take that, package it up, like start fresh, add a couple of things in that I, we had learned building it, and start as a fresh new open source project. Myself, my co-founder, and one other guy iterated on this for about five or six weeks. First commit was September 26th of 2013. And uh, we put together a basic documentation website, and I arranged to give a couple of talks at meetups in New York City. One was the Ruby programming meetup, and the other was the open statistical programming meetup. So I gave those talks in early November of 2013, and the project just immediately took off. Like People were very interested in it. The docs site got posted to Hacker News and was on the front page all day. And basically, I just kept giving more and more talks about it. And it was obvious that we had kind of struck a nerve and found a real need that wasn't being addressed at first in the, in the database space because we were just focused on the database. But over the course of 2014, I built out this bigger vision of creating a platform essentially for solving problems for which time series is a good abstraction. And those are those use cases I had mentioned earlier monitoring, server monitoring, real-time analytics, sensor data, and fintech data. Over the course of 2014, gave more talks. I raised a Series A round of funding, which closed in November of 2014. It was a $8 million round led by Mayfield Fund and Trinity Ventures. And then we just kept going from there. But like I said, it was... I think most other open source companies are actually created after the formation of the open source project. Although I guess Docker, for example, was there was a company, Cloud, that existed for well over a year before Docker came to be. And actually, Dan Skolnick, the partner at Trinity Ventures, who co-led our Series A, was the first money into Cloud, which is the company that became Docker. Would you say that the open source community contributions have been materially valuable to the company? I would, yeah. But it depends on what parts of the project you look at. 
Over the years, we've had over a thousand people at least contribute to code to different parts of the stack. The thing is, a database is not a very welcoming thing to contribute to. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty esoteric, even though it's written in Go, which makes it a lot more accessible than, say, something written in like Erlang or C++. So we've gotten contribution there. But I think where we've had the best community engagement and contribution is actually in our data collector, Telegraph. Telegraph has 200 plugins that allows it to collect data from various network services and stuff like that, and then ship it to other places. InfluxDB happens to be one, but you can also ship it to other databases and even other SaaS vendors who are competitors with what we do. And because of the fact that we've made Telegraph liberally licensed, it's MIT with no restrictions, right? Just MIT license. And we haven't put a limit on what it integrates with. Namely, it can integrate with competitors and that's okay. It means that most of those 200 plugins have actually been developed by the community. So Telegraph, from an open source perspective and a community perspective, is actually our most successful project. Do you facilitate Telegraph through a marketplace or some other way to help it like grow? Nope. It's all, it's all just bottoms up. I mean, it's... Like I said, it's a data collector, so people deploy it widely to their infrastructure. We have no visibility into where it's running or who's running it, other than community members who raise their hands and tell us they are. Obviously, the pull requests that come in on the, on the repo and our customers who use it. Now, we already know, like, we, we have, you know, relationships with like Microsoft, for example, who has Telegraph as an agent that you can deploy across all of your Azure infrastructure to send uh, system metrics and stuff like that to their metric service. So we know it's running there. And there's obviously their Docker images for it and their Telegraph images and pretty much every cloud provider at this point. But the same is true of InfluxDB. So going back to InfluxDB a little bit, I'm wondering about how you find the balance between what to make commercial and what to make open source. This is a really tricky one. And it's something we talk about all the time internally. And it's not something that I got right out of the gate. In late 2013, when we were first building the project, it was me and two other people. We had a seed round of funding. and We had like enough money in the bank to last us like a year. And my only goal at that time was to get as much visibility for the project as possible. Everything we did was out in the open. And then 2014, we raised the A. 2015 comes by. And then in 2016, I knew that we were going to have to go out and raise a Series B round of funding for the company to continue to work on things. And we still didn't have a real clear delineation of how we would actually turn this into a business beyond it just being a popular open source project. And as I mentioned, in the summer of 2015, we offered you know, support contracts as something that we hoped would materialize into actual revenue. But up until early 2016, we hadn't really, like, I think we had signed up maybe like one or two people to, to a support contract, not enough to build a real business on. So basically, in early 2016, I started talking to other open source founders, uh, and, you know, everybody within the company at that time. And where I landed was basically that what we would do is for future versions of InfluxDB, we would make 
high availability and scale out clustering commercial and closed source. And basically anything on a single server would be open source and liberally licensed under the MIT license. We've kept that same line, that same delineation since I announced that in early March of 2016. But it's definitely something we revisit periodically to say like, okay, should we change where this line is drawn? Generally, what we want to do is we always want to find out how can we put more of our code into the open? How can we put more of our code into an MIT licensed code base? And what I learned from that experience of writing that blog post and seeing the reaction in the community about it was once you put something out in the open, it is incredibly hard to pull it back. People get really, really upset, deservedly so. But I mean, the thing I tell people then and still now is that if we hadn't have made that decision in 2016, all of the code that we've developed out in the open since then would not exist because we wouldn't have a company. There's no way the company would exist if we hadn't done that. Basically, like as we do stuff now, essentially, we still have that same drawing line. If it's multi-server, then it's closed. But we periodically think, okay, is this something we can actually release into the open source area? And we, we still revisit that all the time. Pricing is one of the hardest things for tech entrepreneurship. I'm wondering if you struggled with pricing, how often you've had to change your pricing over, let's say, since you went to the open core model. We basically have two products. We have the enterprise product, which is on-premise software. And that's always been licensed on a per-core, per-server basis, which is very similar to how other like database vendors license their software. That price, I think, has changed once or twice since we released it. The first release of that product was in early September of 2016. The other product is our cloud offering which right now is only in AWS. And well, actually, you can spin it up in in GCP as well, but that's actually our on-premise version that you're spinning up. So with the cloud offering, we price based on the amount of storage you want and essentially the size of the servers that you're going to be running in the cluster that we run for you. And essentially what that is, it's a single tenanted service. We spin up a new cluster for each person that comes and signs up. And that's our basically our on-prem enterprise software, but run as a service for people. So we've repriced that once since we launched it. And we launched that in mid-April of 2016. But what we're doing right now is we're actually in the process of creating InfluxDB 2.0. And actually, InfluxDB 2.0 is almost like a re-envisioning of the entire platform, not just the database. So the idea is the platform as a whole offers an API and a user interface for collecting data, defining collection rules, storing data, querying data, visualizing it in dashboards and that kind of stuff, and also processing it, be it for our ETL or monitoring and alerting or that kind of stuff. So the cloud, so we're gonna, again, we deliver that in three different form factors. Open source, which is a single server, and that's MIT licensed. A cloud product, which for version two, we're going to price it as a usage-based model, bytes written in to the API, bytes out of the API, number of API calls, compute time for basically queries, like ad hoc queries or for background processing and storage hours, right? So basically like 
five different pricing vectors. They'll be familiar to anybody who's, you know, a customer of AWS or GCP or Azure. And it's basically a multi-tenanted platform. So basically you, you pay for usage and you don't have to worry ahead of time. Like, Oh, I need, you know, two VMs with this much memory and this much CPU and, and all this other stuff. So, but the, the 2.0 offering is something from an engineering perspective we've had in process for, you know, a year and a half at this point. But the, the vision for the 2.0 cloud offering of being able to offer usage based pricing is something that we've known we wanted to do for, for over two years. Sounds like it's almost like you built the product around the business model. Because I'm an engineer, like I kind of like, it's hard for me to decouple the things. And, and also, like I said, the, the experience early on of like trying to create this open source project and make it popular and then suddenly trying to figure out how to make a business out of it made me very sensitive for the 2.0 version of thinking about everything as a whole. Ultimately, like I said, all open source software development is subsidized. And the subsidy has to come from somewhere. Either it's going to be a foundation, which pays for developers to work on things, or it's going to be other companies that fund it, that you know they have their own successful business models and they have developers working on it. Or it's going to be a single business that creates a successful business around that project. And I think it's useful in open source software to think about the business at the same time as you're thinking about what the software is going to be, how it's going to be designed, and how you're going to ship it to your, to your users and then also to your customers. Talking a little bit about sales, are most of the sales leads inbound? And I'm wondering about your experience growing the sales team and the traditional sales process. Yeah, so most of the sales leads are inbound, right? Most people who come to us that say they want to become a customer started with the open source code, probably actually got it, you know, in production in some way, and they have been using it for a while by the time you know, they come and talk to us. But even within that, I would say there are two kind of important distinctions between how software is sold, and we kind of have both in our environment, which is I think it's becoming more common with open source vendors, but you know, I'd say 10 years ago it wasn't, which is usually you have what's called like an enterprise sales model, which is you have expensive salespeople who are doing outbound sales motion or even an inbound sales motion where you know you line up contracts and annual contracts or whatever. Or you have what I call like a self-serve business model, which is anybody can come to your website, they can sign up with a credit card, they can start and become a customer, and they can buy as they go and actually increase their usage over time. We actually have both. The thing that is has been shocking to me over the course of building this company is just how much friction there is in the enterprise sales model. But it continues to be something that exists because many companies actually want to do business this way. Do you have any channels other than direct? that account for a meaningful amount of sales? We're just now ramping up partnerships. So we do have a partnership with PTC Thingworks for their IoT platform, where Influx is, uh, is a key component of that. And we're having you know, some customers come to us through that. In April, we announced a big partnership with Google Cloud, where they are they're essentially... Google Cloud is making a move to a big push to support basically open source technologies. 
And InfluxDB is one of their best-in-class solutions that GCP will offer as a fully managed service. So they have this you know, whole video with other open source vendors that they pick to partner with. We'll have that launching later this year for our 2.0 product. In the past, you've expressed concern about the large cloud companies potentially being at odds with open source companies. I'm wondering if your concern is somewhat abated. No, it's still a concern for me. Some people will say MongoDB is no longer an open source company. They relicense their code under the SSPL, which is not recognized by the OSI. So in theory, MongoDB looks more like what I call a freemium software company, right? There's a free product that you can use, which is MongoDB community, and there's a premium product. And the same goes for Elastic, for the parts of Elastic that they don't have licensed under a standard Apache 2 license. They've made a number of moves over the last couple of years to carve out pieces of their platform that are either not open source at all or source available, but under licenses that essentially make it not an open source thing. Yes, those companies are, are thriving, absolutely. And I'm, I'm bullish on both of them. But the moves that they have made with regards to their licensing are basically direct responses to the threats that they see from cloud vendors. By all back channel things I've heard, AWS makes more money off Elastic than Elastic does. I think the tricky thing is when it comes to if you're going to make a business out of open source software and what you want to provide is a hosted service, the cloud vendors have a competitive advantage that you cannot possibly hope to get, which is economies of scale. You cannot buy hosting cheaper than they can. You can't buy hardware cheaper than they can. You can't buy network bandwidth cheaper than they can. So they're more than happy to essentially commoditize the software, commoditize the platform so that they can sell more and more hosting, which basically, like, if you want to get in the hosting business in a meaningful way, requires billions of dollars of upfront capital expense. I think that continues to be a problem. And honestly, I think... I really do think Open Core is the, still the best solution for that, which is keep some of your software closed source, develop a service around it, or develop it as an on-premise enterprise offering, and just make sure that what you have closed continues to be a big enough investment and competitively differentiated so that even if one of those vendors decides to go after it, you still have some meaningful way to differentiate from them. I mean, the truth is, like, if Amazon or Google or whoever wants to come for you, there's, <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. And they can outspend you, guaranteed. It's just a matter of doing the best you can with the software you're delivering. And, and hopefully, like, the fact that you're the, basically the creator and the steward of the open source project gives you a little bit of an advantage in terms of creating service around it that is better, or at least preferable. Right. And I would hope innovation also, that as the creators, you have an advantage releasing new features and, you know, keeping ahead of them. Right. Absolutely. Again, like this, this is another question. I think it raises another question, essentially, which is once infrastructure software gets really mature, like how much innovation is there in it? How much are people just wanting it to be like essentially stable in terms of the API and stuff like that? As you get more and more mature, maybe the innovation curve, or at least the feature delivery curve, it becomes less important. So it becomes easier for a larger vendor to keep up with what you're doing. I want to run by one business model that I 
heard of last week in an interview, which I'm embarrassed to say I had never thought of, but it's pretty obvious when somebody said it to me. But the idea was basically that older versions would not be updated unless you had a commercial license. So if you want to update the open source, you have to go to the latest version. So Java, for example, if you want to use Java 1.4, you need a license or you need to pay Oracle. But I'm wondering what you think about that idea. Yeah, I mean, I guess on some level, this is what Red Hat does, right? It's kind of their thing. Even though they don't have closed software, it's all about supporting older versions. I think, I mean, as a, <laughs> as a developer, like it's painful to support those older versions. That's why there's maybe a business for it. But again, it's still fairly limiting. I think also, if your software is being delivered as a service, there's less value in that because you kind of punt on that concern to whoever it is you're paying to deliver that service. Yeah, I don't really know. Honestly, to me, that doesn't seem like a, a very good model. Last question. I'm sure you've had a couple of really interesting years starting the company. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for entrepreneurs who are about to embark on a similar adventure. I think it is pretty important to come up with a with a, a bigger vision in terms of what you want to do fairly early on. I know I'm saying this even though when I first started this company, we ended up changing that. <laughs> I'll stick with open source because it's easier there, which is if you're going to start a business around open source software, I think it's important in the very beginning to actually develop a point of view behind what is commercial and what is open. And basically, I would say it's worth thinking about that as part of your product design, making sure that the product design actually meshes well with how you plan to actually turn it into a business. Okay, that was fantastic. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. Sure, no problem. Thank you for having me. And thanks to the InfluxDB team for helping to organize this interview. Transcription and episode audio can be found on opensourceunderdogs.com. Music from Broke for Free and Chris Zabriski. Audio editing by Inez Satenji. Production assistance and transcription by Natalie Lau. Operational support from William Lau. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at FOSS Podcast. That's F-O-S-S Podcast. Next week, we'll chat with Corey Scobie, Senior VP of Product and Engineering at Chef. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>